Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 25. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed, let them be ashamed, which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord, teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth, and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation, on thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray together. Deliver us, O most merciful God, from all our miseries, because we lift up our souls unto thee. Remember not, we pray thee, the offenses of our youth and our former ignorance. And if we have through negligence offended thee, do thou of thy clemency pardon us. Wherefore we say glory be to the Father, who is gracious and righteous. Glory be to the Son, the way in whom sinners are taught. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the secret of the Lord. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we come now to question 19 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So let's read this, and then uh, I'll say something about it. Question 19 asks, What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. We've been studying in the Catechism the doctrine of original sin, and this morning we are concluding that study with a description of the misery that we have inherited as children of Adam and Eve. Just as a father passes on his status as a spiritual debtor and slave to sin, uh, sorry, just as a father passes on his status as a slave or peasant unto his children, so also Adam passed on to us his status as a spiritual debtor and slave to sin. Just as a pregnant mother who is addicted to heroin may pass on the ill effects of that drug to her innocent baby, so also we, which are born as descendants of Adam and Eve, receive an addiction and proclivity to sin from them. The Catechism elaborates on this misery we've inherited by describing it under two headings. So the two headings, first and foremost, we have lost communion with God. We are born spiritually dead, separated from the God who is the source of all life. Second, we are born under God's wrath and curse. That is, we are subject to the eventual punishment of sin, which is bodily death in this life and the pains of hell forever in the next. 
This miserable estate should frighten us. We should be afraid of God's justice and desperate to avoid the pains and torments of hell. This fear of punishment is a good beginning towards the fear of God that leads to salvation. As it says in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool says in his heart that there is no God, Psalm 14.1. And by denying God's existence, the fool thinks he can deny the punishment he knows that he deserves. The fool, therefore, is a man who lives in a fantasy world. But there is one inevitable reality that no fool and no atheist can escape, and that all of us must reckon with, and that is the inevitable reality of death. Death is the destination of all humanity. From dust we were formed, and to dust we shall return, Genesis 3.19. What then can dust do in the face of such inevitability? Well, the answer God gives us is the death of his beloved son. Jesus is the one who takes on our dusty nature and suffers in our place. Christ endures the miseries, the greatest miseries a man can feel. His body was tortured and crucified. He was smitten and afflicted. He was put to shame and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus suffered the just penalty for our sins, and by this voluntary and loving sacrifice, he purchased for us eternal salvation. This means death does not have to be something we fear. Hell does not have to be our final destination. If you look to Christ and ask God to save you, he is more than willing to give you eternal life. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. This morning's sermon text comes from John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let us pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate Word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
I thought for a while about the topic and the session gave me license to um, think about something and, and uh, offer it. And this morning's sermon has to do with perseverance. And one of the, one of the reasons I thought about it is because of uh, how important that particular doctrine is, as well as all the doctrines in the Bible. And by way of introduction, I would like to um, start with a very short quote from Bishop J.C. Ryle. He says this, There are two points in religion on which the teaching of the Bible is very plain and distinct. One of these points is the fearful danger of the ungodly. The other is the perfect safety of the righteous. One is the happiness of those who are converted. The other is the misery of those who are unconverted. One is the blessedness of being in the way of heaven. The other is the wretchedness of being in the way of hell. So this sermon this morning is a very, certainly a very doctrinally oriented sermon. And in many areas of our evangelical world this, these days, doctrine is not a very welcome thing to consider. Um, people see it as something rigid or unwelcoming or, or not very sensitive to the needs of others or anything. But doctrine is important. And, you know, I'd like to define what doctrine is. Can, and I wanted to ask one, um, our young folks here, what is doctrine? Can anybody define doctrine for me? Well, doctrine is a kind of a, it sounds like a big word, but actually it's nothing more than instruction. It's nothing more than instruction or teaching imparted by an authoritative source. And of course, what could be a more authoritative source than the Word of God? So when we talk about biblical doctrine, we can see that it is important, and it's important for us to embrace it. It's important for us to study it. It's important for us to, to be very well aware of it. And there are two questions this morning that I would like to ask, and I hope I am able to answer for everybody here. One is, what is the perseverance of the saints, and why is it important? The other is, how can we know that we are numbered with the elect, that our names are indelibly inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life? So... Prior to getting into that specifically, let me, uh, allow me to do a very brief kind of lead up to it. When we talk about redemption and the application of redemption upon our lives, what is known as the Ordo Salutis, we must study and consider in the following doctrines, actually. <clears throat> One is effectual calling, and that's the action by which God makes his people the partaker of redemption is that of a summons. And then there's the doctrine of regeneration. God's call, since it is effectual, carries with it operative grace, whereby the person called can answer the call and embrace Jesus Christ as he has freely offered the gospel. That grace is the grace of regeneration. Then we come to the doctrine of faith and the doctrine of repentance, and I put those hand in hand here. Regeneration is inseparable from its effects, and one is faith. Without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when he is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible not to believe. 
The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. See that in John 6.37. The next doctrine, very briefly here, is justification. And of course, we've heard entire sermon series on that. But justification for our purpose this morning is a declaration or pronouncement respecting the relation of the person to the law which God, the judge, is required to administer. God gives us a new legal standing before him. And we see that in many different scriptures, Romans 8 and Romans 3, Deuteronomy 25. Then there's the doctrine of adoption. The redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. And we see that in John 1 and, John, and Galatians 4, as well as and, and the final doctrine here uh, to, in the lead-up to talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints would be sanctification. And certainly we are all in the midst of that in this season of our lives as we walk in Christ. Sanctification, God makes us saints, holy people, working out our regenerate nature to renew us in the image of Jesus. And there are uh, quite a few scriptures that attest to that. It's, invi- it's vitally important for us as believers to have a thorough understanding of these doctrines. And granted, there is often mystery in theology. I think we would all nod our head to that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But remember, the things of God, the things God reveals, belong to us and to our children forever, said in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Now let's pursue this first question of the day um, and of what and why. Before looking at the biblical teaching regarding perseverance, let us consider what the doctrine is not. First, it does not mean that Christians are free from, of all spiritual danger and just because they are Christians. In fact, their danger is magnified, for the world and the devil will be active opponents to them. The entirety of Satan's, Satan's kingdom, if you will, his, his evil princes are arrayed against those of God. There's a reason why Jesus prayed in John 17, I have given them your word, and the word has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Whoops. I thought one of you football players would have caught that before it hit the ground. Remember that as Jesus uttered these words, the evil one was entering Judas. And the very next morning, Jesus was fixed to be condemned by the world. Left to themselves, the disciples would surely perish, but Jesus prays for them, and although the danger is great, they are what? They are kept by the power of God. Second, perseverance does not mean that Christians are free from falling into sin just because they are Christians. Luke so aptly prayed that earlier, just a couple minutes ago. Let's look at just a few examples. I'm not going to elaborate on them, but Noah fell once into drunkenness. Abraham twice said falsely that Sarah was his only sister. Jacob deceived his father Isaac. Moses spoke unadvisedly with his lips. David committed horrible adultery. Solomon lost his first love and was led away by his many wives. Hezekiah forgot God and boasted of his riches. Peter denied his Lord three times with an oath. The apostles all forsook Christ in the garden. All these sinned, yet were not lost. In fact, there is not a single story in the Bible of one who was truly a child of God who was lost. 
Many were overtaken by sin, but certainly none perished. And finally, perseverance does not mean that those who merely profess Christ without being born again are secure. Specific warnings are given to those who heard the gospel and appeared to trust in Christ, and yet were not truly saved. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, in John 8, 31. This seems to say that perseverance on the part of the believer is the final proof of whether he or she is truly born again. Jesus also said, he who endures to the end will be saved, in Matthew 10, verse 22. Peter wrote, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, never fall, 2 Peter 1, Verse 10, it is possible to be quite close to Christian things and yet not truly be regenerate. Many of us have felt agonizing loss at a professing brother who simply walked away to be engulfed in the world. I encountered this a lot at the mission um, doing recovery with the addicts there. Many of them were programmers. Many of them knew, knew how to play the game. And as we were a Christian recovery program, many of them quickly learned the language of Christianity, but many of them walked away, and it's heartbreaking to see that happen. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints now does simply mean that those who are truly regenerate and saving union with Christ cannot lose their salvation. It's as simple as that. And as a church here, Christ Covenant Church, that upholds the Westminster Confession of Faith, here is how chapter 17, section 1 puts it. Those whom God has accepted in his beloved Son and effectively called and sanctified by his Spirit can never totally or finally fall out of the state of grace, but should certainly persevere in that state to the end and be eternally saved. Now, when we look at the confession we certainly want to make sure we understand and keep in mind that the confession is obviously subservient to the word of God. So just in that, just in that short statement there, there are five biblical citations, at least five biblical citations, that, that it was, has been drawn out of. Okay, and we're going to hear more from the Westminster Confession a little bit later this morning. We are people of the book, and... We need to keep that in mind as we, as we look at the confession. But the confession, the, the Westminster Confession can help us. It's a map for us. It helps when we want to study these different doctrines. I've listed seven or eight dis different doctrines already. If we want to study those, the confession is a good place to help you organize that study. Why not use it? The divines wrote this and spent months and months and even years developing it and, and drawing it out of the Word of God. We can see how contingent, as we look at these doctrines, and when you begin, when we think about the perseverance of the saints, that's the P in TULIP, right? Of our Calvinistic acronym TULIP. And as we look at it, we can see how contingent these are upon one another, and there's a reason why perseverance of the saints is last, because how, how else you can spell TULIP for one thing? But it starts with, that, with, the, with the understanding and the doctrine of total depravity. And then, and then when we think about unconditional election, we, we have to have a firm grasp of total depravity. And then as we look at limited or, atonement or particular redemption, we need to understand unconditional election and total depravity. And of course, as we look at irresistible grace, you see what's going on here. And then finally we end up with the perseverance of the saints. And it only makes sense. 
But these doctrines are very, very important for us. Since God has elected certain individuals out of the mass of fallen humanity to receive eternal life, and those so chosen will necessarily come to receive that life, it follows that their salvation must be permanent. If the elect could at some point lose their salvation, God's election of them to eternal life would not truly be effectual. I remember hearing John MacArthur say one time, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And a mature Christian understands that. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If your salvation was dependent in any measure upon you, you would lose it. If salvation could be lost, regeneration would have to be reversed. And of course, because it's God who does the regenerating, it's the Holy Spirit of God, it must be impossible. Eternal life, by definition, is what? It's everlasting. Our best source of the absolute truth of this doctrine comes from the Bible and the many promises that God himself gives us. One of the most straightforward proofs is Jesus' statement to his disciples, taking from our sermon text this morning at the start. Let me read it one more time. Jesus said in John 10, 27 and through 30, even though I have only the two verses in your, in your handout. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give... I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Okay, hard, a good statement. One that we can rest in and be, be secure in. But why? Why is that true? Why, is that, why does that comfort us so much? Because it goes on to say in verse 29, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Accordingly, Paul had complete confidence in the Lord's keeping, 2 Timothy 1.12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And in addition, we Calvinists can infer our own our view of perseverance from other doctrines. Among them is, true, is the truly regenerate believer's union with Christ. If believers have been made one with Christ and his life flows through them, nothing can conceivably nullify that connection. Remember Paul, for instance, in Galatians 2.20 says, For I am crucified with Christ, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. And, of course, there's John 15, 1, 11. There's a myriad of, of, of Scripture in, in Holy Scripture that attest to this. In addition, God displays the seal of his Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. And we remember, what does a seal do? A seal tells you who owns it, and a seal guarantees the contents, right? When the seal is there. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And of course, perseverance is not simply a New Testament doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. The full counsel of God's word 
attests to the security or perseverance of the saints. David wrote in Psalm 138, verse 8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And here at Christ Covenant Church, as we are devoted to sing the psalms of God in our worship, we can hear the keeping power of God. In Psalm 121, we just sang that about three, four minutes ago. Or have I been going on longer? I don't know. Um, the Lord is compared to a divine watchman over his people during their earthly lives. The words keep or preserve are sung six times in the course of the worship of the hymn. Six times. Now, some of you are going to... It's like telling somebody you can't lick your elbow. Who, people are going to go home and try to lick their elbow. So somebody's going to go to their liturgy today and, and count all the times that are in that, in that song that we sang just a few minutes ago. And six times God keeps us. He preserves us. And that's over and over and over again. In Isaiah 27, verses 2 and 3, it says, In that day a pleasant vineyard sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. And hear the strength of the truth of this doctrine in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Peter wrote this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And allow me to share now section 2 of chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession with you. It says this, This perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on the unchangeable decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, on the powerful operation of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, on the indwelling of the Spirit and the life of God within them, and on the nature of the covenant of grace. These grounds provide the certainty and infallibility of the perseverance of the saints. This statement is drawn from a great deal of Holy Scripture. And as I looked at this particular uh, small section of chapter 17, there are 17 biblical citations that jump right off the page at you. Of course, I have a study guide that tells me that. But anyway, there's 17, 17 and even more. If salvation resulted from an act of human free will, as some professing Christians are wont to believe, it would be undone the same way. But since salvation is of the Lord, what he purposes, he accomplishes. There are five reasons given here in the confession, in this portion of the confession, section two of the perseverance of God's elect. One, the Father's unchanging and unconditional love for his chosen. There's Christ's work for them. The Holy Spirit's indwelling, the work of regeneration, and the nature of the covenant of grace in securing these benefits. Now, we've read the warning passages in the Bible and Hebrews and other places concerning the apostasy or falling away from the faith. And time doesn't permit me to address those passages this morning, but allow me to expound on a portion of Scripture that you have probably, um, I think, been anticipating or waiting to hear. And that's out of Romans 8, verses 33 through 39. Paul lists three possible causes of separation from God's love in these verses but then dismisses them all. 
In Romans 8, 33 and 34, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christians know that although we are justified by God, we are still sinners and sin daily in thought, word, and deed. Well, what of it, Paul says? Christ has died for sin, past tense. Therefore, in God's sight, sin is gone forever. We stand justified before God. If someone accuses the elect, God is, after all, both the just and the justifier. And in Romans 8, 35 through 37, as we continue on, it says, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul speaks of internal external and internal suffering. This suffering is real and should be expected as we see in Paul's quotation from Psalm 44, verse 22. But suffering will not triumph. It can also not separate us from the love of God. And finally, in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The third potential cause of separation from God's love is the existence of supernatural powers. And Paul says that even these cannot triumph. And Paul says as well in Colossians 2 verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over, over them in him. Let me say a final word here on perseverance before I close with thoughts on assurance. I think we can see how, this doc, how important this doctrine is, but how, how it's so bolstered by the word of God. As we are secure in the fact that God keeps us, let's remember that the word perseverance is used for this word rather than preservation. Perseverance until the end is not accomplished irrespective of faith, but through faith. And let us appreciate the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and recognize that we may entertain the faith of our security in Christ only as we persevere in faith and holiness to the end. It was nothing less than the goal of the resurrection to life and glory that Paul had in mind when he wrote this. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's up from Philippians, of course, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And before I talk for just a few, uh, a couple minutes on assurance, let me, let me quote John Murray here, the, the old Scott from uh, Westminster Seminary. He says this, and what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to highlight here is that we don't get saved and then sit around and just enjoy that and do nothing. And Murray says this, The perseverance of the saints reminds us very forcefully that only those who persevere to the end are truly saints. 
We do not attain to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus automatically. Perseverance means the engagement of our persons in the most intense and concentrated devotion of those means which God has ordained for the achievement of his saving purposes. The scriptural doctrine of perseverance has no affinity with the quietism and antinomianism which are so prevalent in evangelical circles. We must work out our great salvation. This is not done with Murray, but we must work out our great salvation with fear and trembling. And when Murray wrote this, he, nothing, things have not changed. Things have not changed that um, it's vital that we, we understand that we are not neutral on things. Now, as we look at Blessed Assurance, again, I'm going to go one more time to the confession. How can we be sure we are saved? Chapter 18, section 2. Says this, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces into which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. We hold that only the Bible teaches absolute certain truths. But your name is not in the Bible. My name is not in the Bible. So on what basis can we call so on what basis can we have what the confession calls the infallible assurance that faith is true and we belong to God? The confession lists three realities upon which our infallible faith is founded. The confession speaks of the divine truth of the promises of salvation. Clearly, God promises eternal life to all who receive Christ. In John 1.12, I referred to it earlier, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so many more verses. His promises are infallible. If, if indeed, excuse me, his promises are infallible, continuing in the faith brings assurance. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven. The second basis mentioned in the inward evidence of those is the inward evidence of those graces into which the promises are made. We think of sanctification, make our calling and election sure. Second Peter 1, 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you, practice, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is important to not only look at God's promises, but it's also important to consider the promises of God that, that he has shown within us, that he has demonstrated to us that he is fulfilled in our own lives. The continuing presence of sin in our life should not discourage us because God does not promise to make us sinlessly perfect in this life, but he does promise growth and grace and holiness. That's what he promises. 
Finally, there is a testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God. The confessional statement comes right out of Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself, and this is, this is Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be what? Be glorified with him. Always remember that our assurance is a supernatural thing. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is perfect, and never makes a mistake, ever. So he persuades us that we observe in God's word and in our own lives is really true, really evidence of grace, and that evidence compels us to pray. That evidence of Christ in us compels us to pray and study and meditate on God's word to minister to others to attend church and worship God with the saints, as well as nonstop worship in our own personal and family life, to confess and repent of sin, to share the gospel with the lost. When we understand the importance of the doctrine of perseverance, it allows us no room for laxity, slothfulness, or apathy. We are not a passive people. There is no neutrality. I, say it, I said it earlier and I say it again. There is no neutrality. You're either for God or you are against God. You're not kind of, sort of, for God. And Jesus didn't leave us in Matthew 28 with a great suggestion. He left us with a great commission. So again, this perseverance, this, this security that we have is so vital for us. But what it does is it doesn't allow us to just go sit in a corner and stare at our navel, navel or climb on a mountaintop and sit there and, and just bask in the fact that glory is coming. But rather it allows us to roll up our sleeves, to tie up our shoes very tight, and to head out and minister to those whom the king puts in our path. And I want to close with this. Uh, Kay and I this year have been reading through uh, Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And uh, obviously it's October 1st. So uh, this morning we sat down and we read through today's devotion. And I highly recommend that devotion. It's, it's, it's Spurgeon, so what else needs to be said? But... There was a part of it when we read it this morning and I had to get up and go, I wanted to insert it in here as, as a closing. Okay, I was going to be done about 45 seconds ago, but endure me just a little bit longer. And here's, here's the scripture that he drew from the, for today's devotion. It says, he will give grace and glory. He will give grace and glory. And here's just the last little piece of what he had to say this morning to us in our living room. And what a coincidence, right? Ooh. The little conjunction and in this verse is a diamond rivet binding the present with the future. Grace and glory always go together. God has married them and none can divorce them. The Lord will never deny a soul glory to whom he has freely given to live upon his grace. Indeed, glory is nothing more than grace in its Sabbath dress. 
grace in full bloom, grace like autumn fruit, mellow and perfected. How soon we may have glory, none can tell. It may be before this month of October has run out, we shall see the holy city, but be the interval longer or shorter, we shall be glorified ere long. Glory, the glory of heaven, the glory of eternity, the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Father, the Lord will surely give his chosen, O rare promise of a faithful God. And the devotion ended with this uh, short verse, two golden links of one celestial chain, who owneth grace shall surely glory gain. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let me pray. Our, our merciful God, who is pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, grant us all grace that we may not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may believe what has been proclaimed to us. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do, as you conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And all the people of God say, Amen. Amen. The Lord is a great shepherd. The Lord is a great shepherd who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. There may be wolves and bears and lions in the wilderness, but our good shepherd leaves the ninety-nine to seek the one little lamb that has wandered off. God goes looking for his lost sheep, and he rejoices always to take us up into his everlasting arms and bring us back home. So if you have wandered, if you are feeling lost, it's not too late to return. If you have stumbled and fallen, he delights to set the bone back into place. If you are hungry and weary, the good shepherd will feed you. That is why we are here. So come and partake in faith. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. A twofold charge. Let's continue the singing at our psalm sing afterward. I do invite you to join us in the fellowship hall for that. And then secondly, uh, rest. Rest in the blessed assurance of your Father, and then let us go to work tomorrow. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Go in peace.